0: Right club be the right club today yeah well, i mean that's better than most how about him that is better than most better than most
1: expect anything different all right guys i am especially excited about today's episode with the uh, commissioner of the lpga tour mike wan uh, comes on! Answers every question we could possibly have about uh, the cancellation of LPGA golf, golf in general, sports in general. Uh, can't wait for you guys to get to it. As you guys know, we appreciate the women's game. Maybe I would say maybe more than the average golfer does. We don't. We, I would love to support it more than we do. We do our absolute best to support the game. But if you are like us, and if you watch it on TV, you've no doubt seen a lot of Callaway logos during coverage. Callaway also is proud to support the LPGA, feels a, a huge staff of up-and-comers uh, like Bomber and Van Dam. If you haven't seen that golf swing yet, you are completely missing out. Uh, the gritty Madeline Sagstrom, always effusive, Emma Tally, as well as uh, Stanford standout, Andrea Lee. So uh, in addition to the product that they have in the hands of their staffers, Callaway typically has about twice as many drivers in play as any other brand on the LPGA Tour, uh, and more irons, fairway woods, and hybrids, than anyone else. That means the best players, best female players on the the planet are choosing to play Callaway because of the equipment's performance and not necessarily because of a paycheck. And guys, guess what? Their games and the way they hit it probably lines up a lot more like the way you hit it than a lot of PGA and top male professionals do. So take note of that. Uh, By the way, Callaway LPGA staff also boasts major winners, Morgan Pressel, Yanni Sang, Georgia Hall, Michelle Wee, and Jung and Lee Six. So Visit CallawayGolf.com for plenty of content and information about Callaway's LPGA staff. That's CallawayGolf.com. Without further delay, here is Mike Wan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Gosh, I got to admit, we are doing amazingly, uh, actually getting connected with people uh, in these recent weeks because I don't think anybody else has anything to do. I'm not saying that you have nothing to do, Mr. Mike. One, I'm sure you're more uh, more busy than usual. But how are you uh, spending your time during this uh, suspension of play on the LPGA Tour?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I usually spend my time working on the season two or three years from now. And now I'm working on the season two or three months from now. So it's uh, 2020. We put to bed back in early 2019. So to be spending virtually every minute of every day, you know, working with different sponsors and. And trying to figure out how to, how to get them in a date that can work. We obviously have more events than we have dates. So it's been a uh, busy, stressful time, all starting with um, every conversation starts with, so when will you guys start playing? So uh, there's a question nobody can answer.
1: Well, and that's that's what kind of what I want to get to right away is the uncertainty is what's driving everything. So how, are you are you able to plan for anything at this point? I mean, I know there's a ton of hypotheticals that are going around. I'm sure you are, you know, exploring every possible scenario, but is there anything you can say for certain that is going to happen in the near future or the distant future?
0: Well, I'm sure just like any other tour you talked to, we've got in our case we've got three scenarios, a scenario that says We start playing in the next, you know, in the next month. A scenario that says we don't start playing till mid-July, and a scenario that says we don't start playing till mid-September. Each one of those scenarios has a schedule with it. Each one of those schedules has economic, you know, repercussions that we got to deal with, and each one of those schedules has regulation uh, adjustments and changes we got to think through. So I'm sure it's driving my team crazy, but we're looking at three different 2020 looks.
1: Well, and add in the fact, too, that I imagine, how is the structure of your team look right now with the social social distancing in place? I mean, who's working from where? How are you guys coordinating this? Is Are you doing video chats every day? How, how does it look at, at LPGA headquarters?
0: Yeah, I think this is week three of work from home. Uh, in the first week, uh, because I'm over 50 and I struggled with the idea of working from home, I drove in every day, and my CFO and I, and usually one or two other people were in the office. So, an office that holds 110 people had anywhere between three or four in any given day. So I thought I was killing it on a social distancing front. And then as the things turned kind of more aggressive and the county suggested that they didn't want to see any cars in our parking lot. Uh, so this is week two for us working at home, but yeah, it's a, it's a full long day of video chats. That's for sure. It's, uh, you know, we, we have the same number of meetings. We just don't have what I really miss is the impromptu meetings, the meetings that happen in the hallway or. In the parking lot, where you see somebody, and that leads to another conversation. So we're we're pretty connected, um, but I really miss the. Uh, I find it really strange to have 15 minutes free in the middle of my day, where one call ends at 1:45, and the next one starts at 2. Usually, those are filled with somebody standing in my doorway. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a lot of work gets done on stuff that is uh, that is not scheduled. But uh, let's get into kind of some of the specifics here. Uh, mostly I'm curious for timelines because I think for the, a lot of the general public, this has been a very slow drip of information. And a lot of myself included, a lot of people had, had trouble kind of coming to terms with the severity of this thing just because of how not severe the um, – the, the steps taken to address it were in the beginning. So going with, with your guys' timeline and looking back at it now, it, I, I believe it's January around January 30th, you canceled the event in China, and then February 9th, you canceled the remaining two events on the Asian swing. I'd imagine looking back at that now, it's looking like one of the easier decisions you had to be made, but I'm guessing that wasn't easy at the time. But when did the coronavirus get on your radar, and when did you begin considering that golf was going to need to get suspended?
0: Yeah, I've said many times, we were probably COVID before most of the world, uh, at least on this side of the world, had heard of COVID. We, um, mid-January, or just late January, started talking to our tournaments in China, Thailand, and Singapore. And, uh, you know, if I'm being honest with you, I think back then, it feels like three years ago, we probably uh, canceled those more out of what we didn't know. know, There was this new virus. There was a lot of countries that were having quick reactions to it. We weren't sure how broad spread it was going to be. And um I, I think we were more concerned about what we didn't know. And I think one of the things that caught our attention early on was if somebody on the tour or if a volunteer or a scoring partner, anybody in sort of the traveling circus were to come down with this disease, they would likely quarantine us quarantine us in place for fourteen to twenty one days. Now you say that today and everyone goes of course, but back at the end of January, the idea of quarantine this is before there was cruise ships held in on docks and so I remember thinking to myself, you know, we could go to Thailand, Singapore, China, and some walking scorer gets this disease, and we're going to be in a hotel for 21 days. After that, not sure how many of our players can get out and get into what countries. So we were probably uh, we probably canceled back then out of fear of what we didn't know. If you jump forward to the last six cancellations, that was definitely based on what we then did know. So. Yeah, we um, originally we thought this was really just something, you know, in China and maybe the surrounding areas. And it obviously led to something much more significant uh, that we're facing all over the world.
1: Well, how does it work from an information gathering standpoint? Right. Because before this virus out, uh, you know, broke out, you did not have a team of people. Uh, you know, just working on uh, on the coronavirus. So how do you assemble a team? Who makes up the team? It's kind of an unprecedented uh, situation we're in here, but how do you go about, you know, ultimately coming to these decisions and who is advising you here? You know, you're the ultimate decision maker here, but it, it can't just be you gathering the information. So how does that look?
0: Well, we do have a, cu- a crisis management team at the LPGA and we actually will on occasion do crisis drills. So, you know, I'll wake up one morning and I'll get a text that says, you know, active shooter at such and such tournament. And then at the bottom, it says, this is a drill. And then we go through the course of the day, how would we handle that drill? You know, we've we got to, you know, got to be prepared. If you're in the world of sports, you got to be prepared for the unpreparable. And uh, so the good news for us is we have a crisis team and that crisis team has worked together on both real crises and drills before. But when we got into the COVID crisis team, we obviously added some more Elements to that are our, our chief medical advisor. We added our chief security advisors. Um, we got some contacts with other leagues uh, and then we got to, we started meeting. Uh, I think initially we started re- meeting every three days. That went to every two days. And by the end, it, it's been every day.
1: Were there any. Uh, you know, moving ahead in the timeline, were there what events triggered the LPGA tour starting to look into and eventually canceling tournaments that uh, were stateside? You know, you guys had obviously the Asian considerations here, and, and kind of that's the, that being the source of the virus made that timeline a bit more rushed. But when did things change stateside? And, and what I don't know, were you in contact with other sports commissioners? Was how was that going on behind the scenes to kind of uh, making sure everyone was stopping sporting activities around the same time?
0: Well, two things. Like I said, that makes us a little different. Is we um, we were pretty actively involved in COVID nineteen in Asia, so knowing sort of what it was, how the health ministries in the countries we were planning on playing and were treating it, and even um, you know the idea of quarantines and country bans. While it was fairly new for America, you know, up to a, three four weeks ago, it wasn't so much for us because we'd been dealing with it the end of January. So I think we may be a little bit ahead of the curve on that front. And then I would tell you, back to your specific question about what really changed, we had events scheduled, I think six, five of our next six events at the time were scheduled in California, or, or I think we had Hawaii and, and Arizona in there. But what was going on in, in California was much more aggressive. The, the, uh, the government restrictions on gatherings, I think it started with no gatherings, more than 150 people. Then in two days, it turned into 50 people, and two days later, it turned into 10 we were getting pretty unique advisories both from California government and health. So it got real for us pretty quick. I think mostly because where we were playing at the time, we do have uh, different groups of us who sit on the crisis team who also sit on calls with other leagues. So we were aware of what, ba- uh, what baseball was thinking about. We were aware of what basketball and hockey were thinking about. Uh, and we actually were about to play an event in, in Arizona where, where spring training was going on full and heavy. I mean, you know, stands were full in every uh, in every game, but when we got to a situation where the recommendation from the CDC was no gatherings of ten or more people, it was. We kept telling ourselves we could figure out a way to play go- golf in a safe way. You know, we could definitely keep people separated. We could keep we could play without fans. We had multiple plans ready to play that we were convinced were the safest way to execute a sport in the midst of COVID nineteen. But at the end of the day, it came down to: do we really? How confident are we that this can, that we can do this? How confident are we that we're putting our players, our caddies, and our volunteers in a safe situation? And when you can't answer that with 100% certainty, you already have your answer.
1: Well, help me with this, because if you asked me Wednesday afternoon of Players' Championship week, I could not have fathomed this many sports getting postponed, canceled, delayed, whatever the situation is now. And you mentioned kind of having this somewhat, I don't know if it's advantage is the right word, but having the experience with COVID-19 in Asia. Let's go back in time, three weeks, four weeks. Could you have pictured every sport in the world essentially being suspended or canceled at this moment?
0: No, but I I think Wednesday of players, I don't have my dates mixed up, like I said, in COVID time, it's all six years ago. But um, I think the Wednesday or Wednesday night or the Thursday morning of players, we canceled our first three domestic events right after the Asian events we had canceled. So um, we were at that point where, you know, could we play in our new world order, how we were going to play, or did we have to cancel? And at the time I had a feeling that every commissioner was probably staring at the same set of facts. I was, could I envision where we are today? I couldn't. Could I envision a point where the U.S. was going to go on hiatus? I could. I mean, at that point I was fairly confident in the next few days there wouldn't be anybody playing uh, playing sport
1: kind of i i can imagine you are not uh the jay monahan the pga tour were not necessarily in an enviable position with the timing of kind of the developments of that wednesday so that was the night that travel bands were added rudy gobert the nba tested positive for COVID 19 so wh- how did like were you looking at, at what was going on that week with the players championship were you surprised they had tried to get that tournament in and, and kind of how do you compare your situation to what the pga tour was going through as well
0: incredibly similar Uh, the the difference between the two of us is we weren't playing the week of the players we typically don't it's the week after Asia when we're traveling back and it's a good week to miss because players championship takes up so much TV it wouldn't be good for any of our sponsors so it was an off week for us so for me to talk about what we'd be doing next week was so much more I don't know if relaxing is the right term but I didn't have an event already open already built all my players caddies and fans there so Totally respect the difference between where Jay was and I was. Um, and I think the bottom line is we got to the exact same spot within 24 hours of each other. So that didn't um, didn't surprise me. If I'm being honest with you, when I sat in my, again, I don't remember my days, but when I sat in my Wednesday or Thursday crisis communication meeting, there was probably 20 people in the room. And I walked in and 19 of them said, we can't play. Commissioner, you have to postpone the next three events. And I was the only one saying, guys, that's not acceptable. We're going to show me the, the safe way to play. We're playing next week. And uh, probably for an hour and a half, that went on. And I remember thinking to myself, a friend of mine used to say, if you're sitting in a focus group and only your hand is in the air, you're probably wrong. And uh, I just because I kept telling my team, y- you guys know we can do this. You can. You've told me you can do this. But to their credit, I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by strong, talented people. And I had people that I really trust looking at me said, Mike, and, it's time to it's time to face this fact. And it was tough because I remember when Jay said on TV, I'm a fighter, I fight for my members. I remember feeling the pain of me looking at my team and literally yelling at them saying, guys, we can do this. Uh, thank goodness I listened to them and they didn't listen to me.
1: Wow, I didn't realize that. Because, well, I mean, shortly after that, I think, I don't remember exactly what your quote was, but I remember that going around saying, essentially, the benefit of, w- of putting a tournament on wasn't worth... The what if I'm wrong? Does that sound about right? And how did you ultimately come to that conclusion?
0: Uh, I don't know how I got to the specific. I was on a TV show. I can't even remember what it was that night. And somebody said to me, at the end of the day, when you're sitting at your desk, how would you make this decision? And I said, in any really tough decision, and I think any leader or any person can relate to this, I typically get to the final end where I say to myself, I might be wrong and I might be right. If I'm wrong, can I live with it? If I'm right, can I live with it? And the if I'm wrong was too uh, was too tough to take. If I, if I'm wrong, and I contribute to the you know the lack of health of anybody in my organization or the people we're associated with, that um, that would be a tough one to live with. You know, if I'm if if I if I choose the wrong decision and we don't play and we could have, I can I can live with that. I can apologize for that, but I, but I couldn't do the other.
1: A quick break from this podcast to remind you to go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash up, to check out episode 10, the final episode, season finale of season five of Taurus Sauce. This episode features our visit to Tobacco Road. This season, of course, is presented by our great partners at Original Penguin. I had nothing to do with the editing or putting together this episode, so I'll just say it. It's our best work yet, potentially. It's DJ Pie's best work, maybe. Uh, it's, a, it's a long episode. It's a longer one. You guys have been asking for more video content with this, you know, no live sports. So please do that. Check it out. You'll see us, even in 35 degree weather, you'll see us rocking our Original Penguin gear. And a reminder, you can go to OriginalPenguin.com NLU30 for 30% off your first order with Original Penguin. I have been absolutely chilling in my quarantine sweats uh, and my hoodies. It is an, They have an endless array of hoodies, long sleeve stuff. I get questions still all the time on my Instagram about where that hoodie's from. Just always assume it's from Original Penguin. I literally wear this stuff every single day. Again, OriginalPenguin.com slash NLU30. And this is a great time if you've never watched this YouTube series, Taurus Sauce. Go check it out. The 10-episode season uh, from the Carolinas, like I said, just wrapped up tonight uh, on this Tuesday. And uh, it will keep you busy. It'll keep you entertained for a few hours that we all need at this time. So uh, without any further delay, let's get back to our interview with Mike Wan. So walk me through this. If I'm if I'm an average sports fan, average golf fan, and I am sitting here and I'm saying, I don't get why they can't play tournaments just with no fans. Can you explain to the listeners as to why that, you know, across the board for golf tournaments professionally, that the conclusion has been reached that we can't have tournaments, even if we don't have fans?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, I've, I've said this many times to people. I played golf this weekend, right? I mean, I was six feet away from the guy I was playing golf with and we're walking down different parts of the fairway and Can you play golf now? I assume you probably can. I certainly believe it enough that that I tried to this weekend. But whole different animal when you're talking about players from 35 different countries, caddies from probably another 15 countries. I've got TV personnel coming in from all over the world. Even if I said I'll try to play it without TV or without media, I've still got to have enough volunteers to figure out scoring. We're still going to have to put people – in common parking areas we're still going to have to have uh, have to have ways to feed everybody in the same proposition so like i said if you're you're talking to the wrong guy if you're saying this can't be done because since the very first day i thought to myself i know we can do this i believe we can do this in the right way um and we might get back to that someday but i think right now for me to say we could have been playing and this would have been one of the weeks we canceled Would I have players that couldn't fly home after their event? 100%. Would I have players that couldn't get here if they were in this week's event? Would I have caddies that couldn't get in the country? If they came here and played, would they have to stay quarantined for 14 days? Would they have to stay quarantined for 14 days when they flew back to their home country? And, you know, turn on CNN for 10 minutes and ask me if you think golf is worth that.
1: Yeah. Do you think it's a realistic possibility that when golf returns or maybe even sports in general, when they return, that we will see them return in a fashion that does not include fans? Is that a realistic, not solution to it, but the first step? Or do you think when sports returns that we're going to go full-fledged and everybody's getting together again?
0: I think it's probable that there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a less. I don't think it was going to jump into the deep end right off the first shoot. So I think, you know, I think I've said this to my team many times. Life in general is going to be different when this is over. Regardless, I mean these these kind of times in life change things. But yeah, I think it's probable that we'll see some sports played in a much different uh, type of fan environment. How long will that'll be, or um, how that'll transition? I think we're all, you know, we're all just working through scenarios right now.
1: Well, all right. Let's get into kind of some specifics behind, and I want to know what happens when an event gets canceled. What I mean. Does a sponsor get their money back do they get some of it back all of it none of it is there an insurance clause that kicks in the the trickle-down effect of just an event getting canceled I imagine is very far-reaching how that works with TV contracts and all that I'm wondering how much you can share and what you're willing to share about what happens uh, when you go to actually cancel or postpone an event
0: well in our case each event's a little bit different you know some uh, some of the people that own and operate our event have event insurance I would say, Most of them that have uh, event insurance, it's much more built around force majeure, like you where you have something happen from a force of nature that doesn't allow you to play it, which this obviously qualifies for. But generally what you're talking about is a a tornado rolled through and you're going to have a hurricane that week and you postpone it. You play two weeks later. You fix all your build out. You have all your volunteers on hand. And so essentially, usually that insurance covers the, the down cost between those two times. Now we're talking about uh, force majeure globally you can't play anywhere and i can't really guarantee you a a spot later in the year so the ones we've canceled pretty close to playing you're generally speaking about a million dollar loss an event in terms of everything that's been built paid for vendors etc so when we're not canceling them farther out we're definitely taking on a larger financial risk uh, by trying to wait longer that's um you know some would argue that's a stupid idea mike why are you Prior to just canceling everything out to a certain date, but if we find any kind of change here and, and things get better, we want to be ready to go. So it's a combination. I think in some cases, if a, if a sponsor actually owns the event and runs the event, then they probably got some sunk cost. If a different operator runs it and owns the event, you know they've got some cost. In certain cases, the events like the event that I canceled at the last minute in Phoenix is owned and operated by the LPGA, so that that was mine to uh, to deal with. And the sponsors usually, you know, usually in a force majeure, you know, a force of nature, the sponsors are saying, hey, let's play it again in three weeks. Well, now nobody who's losing their event wants to hear about a three-week-later date. Everybody wants to be in October, November or something where they think this can really get farther out. So it's been a pretty interesting puzzle to try to piece together a schedule because I'm trying to make sure that we're the, we're the kind of partner. We should be. If somebody's business is struggling, and they've got other things to focus on. I don't want golf to get in their way. I'd rather be in business with them for ten years than ten months. But at the same time, I got to make sure my members have a chance to come back, compete, make some money, and and move on the world rankings. So that's uh, that's kind of what we're all dealing with. I'm sure every sport is dealing with.
1: Yeah, and that's where I wanted to ask you next is you know we we've talked a decent amount on this podcast about the structure of the PGA Tour, what they're specifically mandated to do, and I think that all those things kind of really work together. Um, When things are flowing smoothly, it's pretty obvious as to what uh, the PGA Tour feels its obligation is towards its players. And I got to admit a little bit of ignorance towards how the LPGA Tour is structured. Um, And I'm wondering if you can kind of take us through that to compare that to the PGA Tour model. I don't know how similar, how different they are, but when it comes down to this, basically the LPGA Tour is mandated with a mission statement. And we understand at least from the PGA Tour is that their obligation is to, you know, provide playing opportunities for their members and their players. And that becomes the utmost priority in a time of crisis like this. I'm wondering if you can compare and contrast the models and kind of how you guys have narrowed down what your mission is during this time of crisis.
0: Well, I would say the, the way we're structured is very similar between the two. It's not exact, but it's very similar. And the missions are are aligned, if you, would, if you will. I mean, I, our mission is to provide women the opportunity to pursue their dreams, through the game of golf and we do that multiple ways we do that through our tours LPGA tours the tour and now the ladies European tour we uh, we do that through the uh, teaching professionals so LPGA professionals is about 2,000 women that have their certification to teach through the LPGA and keep it that way so we want that's a different way people pursue their dreams and then through our foundation it's, it's getting young girls into this game excited about this game and and staying in this game through our Girls' golf, our education programs, our scholarships, our leadership academies—those are all ways to help women who who love this game and want to pursue it as their personal passion. We provide those opportunities. So, the good news for me is nothing about the mission changes in crisis. It just makes it clearer than ever. I feel a greater need than ever before that when uh, when the smoke clears, obviously figuratively, we can get these people back out on their individual reign teaching. Uh, on golf courses in Europe and semester tour and on the LPGA and doing what we do. I mean, so I think similar to the PGA tour, you know, our, our primary revenue generator is putting on golf on television that we sell all around the world. We sell our TV rights to 150 countries and all of those TV deals have some requirements. We have uh, a am- amount of television hours and minimums we're trying to deliver for them. And I think that's where the thing becomes, more concerning to every league, which is you probably build your your operations off of the revenues you can generate in TV results. And if all of a sudden you're not delivering TV results and those revenues aren't guaranteed, then you got a different business model overnight.
1: How do you picture, and I'm sure there's a million different scenarios that you're exploring, but how could this potentially affect, say, like tour championship payouts at the end of the year, right? There's a season-long race uh, for the CME Globe. Is there potential that that kind of structure could change how people are qualifying for the LPGA tour, how they retain their cards? Is there been anything at least thrown together as in terms of uh, ways you might explore getting creative around how people are maintaining their eligibility or anything that goes along with kind of a season long qualifying or or competition for something like uh, the bonuses at year end?
0: Well, now, your questions are getting, uh, are starting to sound like my members um, in a good way, I meaning you, you've done your homework. So, I always tell people right now, I'm not answering any what if questions. And one person said, What's that mean? I said, If your question starts with, What if we don't start playing until, you know, dot, 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 whatever you're going to say after the what if part is, you know, is just the 400th scenario I've been asked today. So, if I start getting into every version of every scenario, like we'll never, my team will never actually build a schedule because they'll just work on, regulation changes, but I think the simple answer to your question is, and I'm not trying to dodge it, it's just there's way too many balls in there right now to, to tell you where things are going to land, but uh, this will be the year of the asterisks, at least on the LPGA, I would assume on other tours as well. What I mean by that is, because we've always played, fill in the blank, the U.S. Women's Open, Evian Tour Championship, or something this way, that's how we'll do it. That's um, That's not a given in 2020. Because we always finish our season on this date, that's not a given in 2020. Because Q score always delivers blank number of cards. That can't, none of these things can be, uh, can be locked in stone because of precedent in 2020. In 2020, we're going to have to be flexible enough to, uh, to try to provide opportunities in different ways. We're going to have, we're going to ask our tournaments to be flexible enough, as many of them already have been, in terms of moving and how they're going to field sizes and everything else. Exactly what's going to change will be completely contingent on when we start. So if we start in the first of June, we're pretty much just gonna have a really compacted twenty twenty season. If we start in mid July, it's gonna be more compacted, but we probably have a season. If we don't start till the end of August or September, we're probably into some scenarios that are um, that we just never had before on the LPGA, and will definitely be different than what people have experienced in their past.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm just, um, I, I did not expect a hard answer there. I think you answered that very well, but it's just, the <laughs> idea of like, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was like, what if they, you know, what if major tours, LPGA, PGA, corn Ferry, what if they just combine the 2020 and 21 years together, you know, into one. And so you're not kicking anybody off the tour. Cause I think the hardest thing of what you've got ahead of you is based on your decisions, somebody in some way, whatever you do, there's going to be some group of people or just a few people that, you know, that, it benefits them the least. And, you know, whether that be an, a young up and coming player or, you know, a player that's outside of some kind of bubble right now, or, you know, it, th- there's there's going to be a situation where, you know, some very, very hard decisions are going to have to be made. And I, I have to admit, I do not envy you in that in that situation.
0: Well, we've been, uh, you're totally right. I mean, unfortunately, that's Commissioner 101. I always say every time I hit the send button on my computer, I piss off a third of my. Uh, membership. I'm usually just not sure until tomorrow which third. You know. And then while we've been talking, I promise I've gotten at least four voicemails of other what if questions because everybody's sitting at home saying the same thing. Jesus, if I only get five starts before the next major, how do I play into the major? Will the major field criteria be different if I only have five starts? And so everybody's got the criteria built on whatever their personal situation is. But you're right. I mean, 2020. The first thing I did when we canceled the last uh, six events is I called, uh, I called all the rookies that were in those fields. I probably should have called every rookie, but I, I looked at the field of people who were getting in. I started looking at the names, and I thought, okay, most of these names will be just fine. And whenever we play again, they're going to get a lot of playing opportunities, and they have good sponsorship contracts. But these kids, I would look at these bottom, I shouldn't say kids, but you know, these athletes worked their whole life to finally get to this level. They probably have spent the whole off season gearing up and now is their shot they finally made it to the best tour in the world and now they're still sitting three months later it's um i feel for them you know i mean regardless of if they're good enough to be the best player in the world i only play a year on the lpga they've earned a better 2020 than i've given them so far and that's kind of what that's what drives us every morning when we get up and the conference golf fest starts all over again
1: this is going to be kind of a two part question, I guess. The first one, uh, I think, is the easier part and it's a shorter answer. And that, how difficult is it to reschedule an LPGA tour event? Can't imagine it's very easy. But along those same lines, I've seen you float the idea or, you know, kind of some possibilities of maybe like a two for one event. Can you walk us through what that might look like and how well positioned you think your tour is to really get creative with whatever is coming? Right? whatever, Whenever golf picks back up here, uh, how you guys are positioned to do things that maybe that are uh, a little bit outside the box?
0: I think that um, I've said this many times. I think being creative on, on scheduling a you know a golf tour uh, that you didn't need COVID to do that. I mean, we we're the ones who put on the golf tournament with no purse, We're the ones who created the International Crown when everybody was asking us why don't we just have the Women's Presidents Cup? I mean, we we've we've prided ourselves in in doing some things that are quite a bit different than maybe that what's always been done. But now you get into this. Challenge. There's definitely, you know, a a lot of tournaments right now in my schedule that can only really play, you know, logically between June 15th and maybe September 15th. Yeah. So when I sit down with somebody and and if they say, Mike, we can't play Mm -hmm. in the June 15th date, what other date you ask me? And I say, How's November 3rd? They're like, Hey, buddy, you know, we're under we're we're under three inches of snow cover on November 3rd. So you get into the situation now. Some sponsors and some tournaments would say, In that case, Mike, I'll just count on me in 21. In some cases, they really want to play for both their own business reasons and probably most importantly because how they feel about these athletes and want to give them the choice. So, we're trying to work through that one tournament at a time. Or, you know, it, it never fails. I mean, you guys can relate with this. Somebody, you realize you can't play somebody's event. I call them and say, "Great news!" On the week of September twenty-first, I got a spot for you. I got the golf course lined up. TV times are great, and they say to us, "You know, my September twenty-first. That's when we have our annual meeting at the Suttonsedge, and, and everybody in the company's gone and." None of our customers could come that week. Doesn't work for us. So you know, every time you think you have all the <laughs> keys crossed. Uh, so yeah, it's been an incredibly frustrating and um, and tough situation because you know I'm in the business of, of, of making check writers want to continue to be check writers. So I don't want to pull out some legal contract and say, "Wait a minute, you agreed to play in 2020, and I can put you on any date." You know, treat them that way, and we'll wake up a very small tour. So we're right. we're just working through them one tournament at a time.
1: And that's, you know, kind of something that uh, we're dealing with too as a company and that anytime you start pulling on some of these strings, you know, it, it, you don't realize how far this cycle of this, what this economic turmoil, how it really goes. So that was one thing I wanted to know is, and it may be too early in the process for this, but some of your sponsors that are maybe getting hit harder than others during this downturn or this, whatever, whatever this is, uh, however you want to classify it, you know, does... Have you have you got any kind of um, cold feet at all in it from any sponsors that may say, "Hey, this probably isn't going to be the top of the our priority list when things do get back up and running"?
0: Yeah, I think you know we've definitely had a couple of sponsors that are worried about you know what this crisis means internally at their own company, and so we're quickly saying, "Hey, listen, if you if if we've got to work together, for how to just get you into twenty one or twenty two, so we can you can focus some time to get your business together, or like you said before, you know, can I bring two tournaments together?" to help the cost for both of you create a really unique opportunity for my athletes. Um, yeah, everyone's a little different, you know, it's, uh, it, there's not, I, I wish I could tell you, this is how every sponsor and every tournament has reacted, but it's, you know, there's 31 different reactions. And as a result, none of them are right or wrong. You just, uh, you got to do the best you can to make it work. And I think the good news is my athletes definitely understand. And I, I'm not saying this to for any other reason. And it's a fact. I mean, uh, they realized that, you know, we, we play professional golf because 34 title sponsors come together and lift us up on a pretty big stage. So if we don't take care of those 34, um, nothing else matters. We don't sit on a five-year guaranteed contract with a two-year no-trade clause. We got to deliver every week, every year for these sponsors. And so this is a great, i always tell people there's two kinds of partners in business, legal partners and ones you want to be with the rest of your life. This is a great time where you have to decide which kind of partner you are. You can be a legal partner, and you can force somebody to do exactly what they have signed up to do. Um, but when that contract's over, so is your relationship. So we've, uh, we've got to be a better partner of that, even if, it, even if it really sucks for us, to be honest. I mean, we're making some decisions now that I know my members would say, gosh, Mike, I wish you hadn't done that. That's not good for us today. Yeah, it's not good for you today, but my job is to make sure the LPJ is strong in 21, 22. Twenty three too, and not just get through twenty.
1: I saw you. This was on Twitter. You made some pleas for sponsors to stick with their players to disregard the requirement for number of events. What kind of traction did that gain? And uh, I'd imagine your your players were very supportive of that. But I'm wondering if uh, if you felt any of the effects from from publicly saying something like that.
0: Uh, I've had a few. I've had a few interviews that I think stemmed from that tweet, which is funny. I mean, I, I realize that I tweet all the time, which must mean most of the time nobody cares. <laughs> it was one of those weird days where I drove home. It was you know, it was late for me, which probably meant it was eight thirty or nine o'clock at night. And I remember just sitting on my couch. The TV was now my wife looked at me and goes, what are you doing? And I'm just, I'm just thinking about these athletes that, you know, I just sent an email to that took me an hour to write, but it's going to take them six months to digest because I just, I just fundamentally affected their career in 2020. That's, uh, and I'm worried about them financially and I'm worried about them health wise. And so, I don't know. Just my mind started. I'm probably really dated too. I'm not even sure if all their endorsement agreements are based on how many times they play or how many TV appearances. That may be very 1995 of me, which wouldn't be the first time. But it just—I was just thinking about you know if if, I've been on the other side. I mean, I worked at TaylorMade and Adidas and Wilson, so I mean, I—I remember being on the other side of that and just was trying to appeal to those people that are in the seats I used to be in that just says, "Hang with these athletes," you know, because they're not, not playing because they don't want to or they can't. They're not playing because the commissioner won't give them the chance.
1: We've talked about a lot of things here so far, but every time I have the conversation, I start to think of more things that are affected by this. So I'm curious, uh, in your mind, what, what would you, off the top of your head, things we maybe haven't talked about to this point, considerations we haven't made that are currently under your purview of just, you know, oh, I didn't even think about so-and-so or this, this, and this, anything that comes to mind?
0: Well, I mean, there, there's 40 things that come to mind. I mean, I think a lot of times, people just assume these golf tournaments are between the LPGA and a title sponsor. That's not true. At least in the LPGA's case, almost all of the events are owned and operated by a different operator. So the IMGs and Octagons and, you know, Iger sports of the world that put on multiple LPGA events. And this is the income of that business, you know? So if you're IMG, you put on worldwide sporting and uh, a global gatherings. I mean, your business is stopped in its tracks. And you know, those are partners for us. We need them to be viable partners to be our viable partners. So those are, those are real. I mean, my TV partners around the world, I worry about not giving them enough television, but they worry about if they don't have live sports, they can't sell the ads. I mean, you can certainly relate to this, but I got TV companies in 160 countries that can't deliver what they've contracted to deliver to their sponsors and you know, TV advertisers. So me saying I'm not going to play just starts rolling down the, you know, every one of our events uh, generates money for a program we run with USGA called Girls Golf. And the thing I'm most proud of in my 10 years as commissioner is we've gone from having about 15% of junior golfers in America being girls to now 37%. And we're on this incredible roll of changing the face of the future of the game. You know, that program is um, is halted. You can't gather 20 young girls together on a tee right now and uh, and have a really cool golf clinic. So it's just you know all this all this momentum. and that's the hard part. I mean you just feel like all this female golf momentum that has taken us years to build is now can you can you throw the switch and it all come back? Probably, but I mean I don't know what the ramp up time is, and I do worry about you know like I said if you're in business with somebody for a long time, and most of our partners I've been in business with for at least a decade, it's hard not to worry about their success at the same time you're worrying about about ours. I mean, I've got caddies who live all over the world who probably don't have the reserves to live through another three months of this. And so it's just, yeah, I I don't, I I don't have the financial wherewithal at the LPGA that other leagues have to just be able to solve these problems. I wish I did.
1: Mm well I'll ask a very hypothetical question it's not a what if so you can't you, you can't answer it I think but if you could go back in time and you can answer this realistically or unrealistically but let's say you're transported back in time uh, I don't know how far but before all of this really hits would you have done anything differently or what would you do if if, the, if you were going back in time
0: Gee, that's a great question and a question I can promise you we will dive into as a team once we try to get through this I mean every time we go through a crisis. Now, this is this is crisis with a capital C. But anytime we've gone through any kind of real business challenge, we typically do a, a what we call an autopsy and just sort of say, "Hey, living again. How do we?" So, I'll give you a good example. When I joined the LPGA in 2010, the LPGA was really hampered mostly because of significant North American recession. You remember 2007, eight, nine, which led to a really challenging 2010, and 11 LPGA, which probably what got me hired. And um, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, if your business can be hampered by one regional recession, you've got problems. So we set out over the next over the next 10 years to build a really diverse portfolio. I mean, now I, I've got sponsors from virtually all over the world, not just events that play in their country, but I mean, you know, I just canceled six events. and If I think about it, you know, there was title sponsors from four different countries in those six events, not just US-based companies we really felt like we were building this recession proof business where if there was a slowdown in Japan, it wouldn't kill the business. It might kill a couple of tournaments. If there's a slowdown in Korea or the U S or Canada. And so, you know, I remember being really bullish a couple of board meetings ago. It was probably a couple of years ago at a board meeting. And somebody asked me a question. I said, guys, we are as diverse in our, in our revenue p- portfolio as any other sport in the world. And we can handle good and bad times in different parts of the world. And I was, you know, stuck my chest out like I was the smartest business guy in the room. What we clearly were not prepared for was a global economic shutdown. I mean, where you face a recession in virtually all regions at the same time. What we do differently will require deeper thought than, than I can give you now. And quite frankly, we're right in the middle of a storm. So I'd love to lie to you and say that I'm thinking about 22 and 23 right now, but I'm thinking about September of 20.
1: Well, I'll ask a, another series of questions here and we'll let you we will get you out of here, but it just this can be yes or no or you can put as much detail behind this as you'd like. Is there a chance that there's no more LPGA golf this year?
0: Uh, my natural reaction is no, but I mean that would be if there's no more golf this year, it's only because there's no ability to play golf.
1: Yeah. I I'm just a, I'm exploring won't be possibilities of I won't all walk sports away
0: from the 20 season if that's your question. Right. Is no, a I, chance of, of course. I mean, if yeah. there's epidemic. I mean, this pandemic becomes even you know more significant than it is today, and it doesn't you know slow up. I mean, we yeah, I think anybody would be kidding themselves to think that playing golf will take priority over that. I think um, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, I have lived through bird flu, H1N1, SARS, MERS. I mean, I've been through my share of of these uh, diseases and, and and pandemics, but nothing like nothing like this. That's for sure.
1: Well, on the optimistic side, if you had to pick a date, guessing on when we might see golf again or a date you guys are working towards currently that you're at least remotely confident in, do you have one of those in mind? Mid-June. Is that the sense that you're getting from other sports leagues as well or kind of the way I'm where I'm coming from on this is it kind of felt like that one week players week that a lot of people, a lot of uh, heads of organizations, knew things that we didn't know yet. So uh, kind of on the on the flip side of that, are you guys getting any indications that that show any information that shows that this really will slow and that we can kind of have something to look forward to?
0: I would say we all have the same data we're all probably interpreting that data a little differently so if you asked everybody that question and they gave you their honest answer you would not hear a chorus of Mm mid-june i think you'd hear a chorus of you know anywhere from mid-may to you know mid-july but nobody and nobody knows you know so we all say it like i said mid-june like i really have incredible insights but it's more like i have mid-june because i have a plan for mid-june that i believe is doable but um, yeah, no, I know enough about what other sports are doing to know that mid June is not is not out of whack relative to what other sports you're talking about. But no, not it's not like July 15 is this magic date that everybody's rallied behind. That's that would be incorrect.
1: Yep, I've asked versions of this question throughout uh, throughout this podcast, but I'm 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 going to ask it very broadly here as we wrap this up. But how much would you say that this something like this hurts the LPGA tour?
0: Uh, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I. I would just tell you that I think the, um, the the switch flip, you know, I think if the NBA comes on tomorrow and throws the switch, it's probably back to 80% of what it was, was in a week or two. I'm not, you know, I don't know what the pickup time is on the LPGA. And I would tell you that one of the things that I'm most proud of at the LPGA, one of the things that other sports always call me and ask about is how did you get so global? How, does, how do you have TV revenues from around the world? How is it that your brand is, supported virtually all over the world i mean that's been our competitive advantage i don't know i mean when we when you ask me that question generally comes from a u.s guy asking a u.s guy so if you ask me about nhl hockey i think it'll be fine in america the day after it starts but if you're truly a global sport not every country is going to recover at the same time not every country is going to care about golf at the same pace so i think our best our biggest competitive advantage in the last 10 years you know might actually cause us to be a slower uptick um, that's the pessimistic view of me. The optimistic side of that is, you know, we might have places and opportunities to play when other sports or other tours don't because we play and, and, and have support in so many different parts of the world. But I do worry that, um, we're just not a light switch in one region. We're what makes the LPG of the LPGA today is the fact that the world watches.
1: See, that's why I knew I could give you a broad question like that. You answered that better than I than I, than I could have even imagined. So uh, with that, we'll get you out of here on the dot on time at uh, one forty-five here. So, Mike, I know you're incredibly busy, and uh, best of luck with all the difficult decisions you have ahead. And uh, we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, walk us through some of this, and uh, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it as well.
0: I appreciate you guys keeping your lights on and talking about golf even in this uh, period. In the meantime, uh, stay safe, and hopefully you can stay home.
1: All right. Thank you, man. Cheers. Bye-bye.